All right, well, let's go ahead and open up those Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. That's page 48 of a Blue Pew Bible, if you want to follow along with us there. Uh, again, kids, kindergarten through fifth grade, it's good to have you with us for the whole service this morning, um, not only to help lead us and to show uh, that you can be active participants in what's going on here at Grace Church, uh, but also that you can participate in here a sermon uh, normally where you get dismissed beforehand and kind of uh, just kind of want to explain what it is. In a lot of ways, it's similar to what you are doing downstairs in that we gather uh, together, we open up this book, we open up the Bible, we read from it. There's a story or passage that we explain what it means and we apply it to our lives. And then most importantly, we show how every story, every passage in this book points to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so you guys downstairs through the Gospel Project curriculum have been studying the Old Testament for almost two years now. Um, Ms. Megan said you just finished the book of Daniel last week. Um, well, we are also in the Old Testament. We are in the book of Exodus. And so as I think Ella said, you guys studied that last year, which means this. You know how it ends, all right? So don't tell your parents, all right, or any of the adults around you. We got a ways to go before we figure it out. But in every lesson that you have downstairs, you have something that is called the Christ connection. And that, again, shows that every story you go through in the Old Testament for the last two years has a Christ connection. It points to Jesus. And again, we do the same thing up here. I'm just not so clear with the adults as to when that happens. But that there is a Christ connection, that Jesus is the most important person in the history of the world. He's the most important person in this book. And it's his life, his death, his resurrection that we can become new people, that we can be transformed from the inside out. It's his love for us that enables us to love him, us to love others, that we serve him and we worship him and we are sent to make his name known because of what he has done for us. And so every single thing that we read has the Christ connection. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 6, chapter 6 of Exodus, which is a beautiful and much needed reminder given to Moses. This sermon will be maybe even less than 30 minutes, okay? If you hear people laughing around you, don't listen to them, all right? It's going to happen. And so for the kids, again, I would encourage you and challenge you to listen. Miss Megan uh, made sermon notes for you. You have a sheet that give you kind of a layout of what the sermon will be that you can write on and follow along. Don't let the adult, adults take that either, all right? They, they're on their own, um, but, and then after the sermon, we have an opportunity to do what we do the first week of every Sunday as a church is we take communion together. Uh, the, 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 the bread and the cup to represent Jesus' death and blood, uh, his body and blood that he laid down on our behalf so we might be saved. Uh, so you're able to see that, witness that. Children, if you have not taken communion before, it's okay to just kind of watch and see it happen um, and you can talk to your parents at some point later as to when and how you can begin to take communion. But we're in Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 13 verses. You can follow along in the Bible or up on the screen. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." Verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So what is a promise? That's a word we're very familiar with, a word we say all the time, I promise, blank. It's a word we probably say way more than we should Because when you think about it, we can't promise all that much, can we? In our own power. Because we have far less control than we often like to admit. A promise is a guarantee. It's a guarantee that one will do something in the future or that a particular thing will certainly happen. And so when I say, I promise, I think almost every time... I can't guarantee what I'm about to say. In reality, we probably should say things like, I hope to. If all the conditions are right, I plan to. I really want to. But we can't guarantee the future. But as Christians, what we can do is affirm the promises of God. You see, if he said it, he will do it. And hearing a promise of God is always good, it's always going to be good news, but it's especially good when we are in the midst of darkness. A light is only as valuable as the darkness that surrounds it. If I were to stand up here and I had a candle in my hand, let's say I went deep in the closet and got the Christmas Eve candles, and I just lit the candle up here, you know what? You really wouldn't care. In a bright room like this, it's just another light surrounded by light. But if AJ, our creative tech director, were to darken this whole room, pitch black, you couldn't see the person next to you, and then I light a candle up here, all of a sudden, you're drawn to it. All of a sudden, you rely on it. All of a sudden, you cling to it. Why? Because light illuminates the darkness. And when light fights dark, light always wins. And in Exodus chapter 6, Moses and the nation of Israel, they are shrouded in spiritual darkness. Exodus 5, if you remember from last week, it ended with Moses groaning in anguish to God, groaning and asking the question, why? And that's how it ended. Why did you send me here? 
Why aren't you delivering your people like you said you would? You, you said you would, and now you're not. It seems like you're not. Why is this happening? You see, Moses, it took him a lot of courage to go into Egypt and with his brother Aaron and say, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And not only did he say no, he made the Israel people work harder because they were asked to be let go. Nothing seems as dark as asking why with no answer in sight. There's nothing more scary than being in darkness with no visible light. We ask why when we're confused. We ask why when we're shocked. We ask why when we're hurt, when we can't wrap our mind around something, when we feel like we lose our footing and our feet can't feel the ground. So I ask you to think in your own minds, when was the last time you asked God why? Some of you were like 13 seconds. That's all it's been. Others, maybe it's been longer. But no matter what our answer is, once the last time you ask God why, we're all going to have a next time that we're going to ask God why, right? Why did my friend treat me that way? I thought we were friends. Why can't I get over that sin that has plagued me for so long? It's been so long and I'm still struggling with it. Why did God allow someone close to me to be taken so soon? Why do others suffer so deeply? Other people, other groups of people. Why did God only make one way to salvation? Why does God love me? When I don't feel very lovable. You see, when someone is struggling with asking why, whether that's yourself or someone close to you, what do we do in those situations? We, we search for light. We, we search for promises to cling to. And the only promises worth holding on to are the promises of God. The only promises that are sure and timeless that bring assurance, real assurance, not fake assurance, lasting assurance are the promises of God. So Moses asks why. And God gives him three answers. We have three promises we're going to see in chapter 6. Three promises that still stand today. Number one, first promise, the Lord is in control. In Moses' mind, Pharaoh's opposition was so strong it was an obstacle so big and immovable, he couldn't fathom ever doing what God has called him to do. To go into Pharaoh and say, let God's people go. Because Pharaoh didn't even budge, man. He didn't like think about it. Pharaoh wasn't like pro and con list and, oh, what about that? What about this? He goes, uh, no. And then immediately makes his people work harder for it. So maybe this illustration will um, work for you. It's like that thing where you, you come up upon an object and you're wondering, can I lift this? This thing has to move. Can I do this myself? And you size it up, right? And you kind of like, all right, now I'm going to get ready to go move it. You bend with your legs, not your back, right? Like lifting 101, lift, go down with your legs and you get under it and you lift it up and nothing. Like it doesn't even budge. Like it's just mocking you that it can't be moved. That is how Moses is viewing Pharaoh. This situation is unmovable. Situation that you might be in life right now, unmovable. And God, in line with his previous answers to Moses' questions, he doesn't punish Moses for asking why. 
doesn't yell at him. He doesn't try and tell Moses how great he is, how strong he is. Instead, he takes Moses' eyes and he puts his hand under his chin and he says, look at me. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out and with a strong hand he will deliver them out of his land. Paraphrase, God just said, Moses, I got this. Nothing has changed in the plan. In fact, I told you I was going to harden his heart, remember? I told you he wasn't going to listen. But the reason is because my glory will be put on display. My strong hand will be revealed to the point where he will actually send my people out. Did you notice that? God is not only saying Pharaoh will let my people go. He's saying he will be the one to drive them to the airport. Are you following? He's like, I will send them out myself. I will drive them out after he experiences the power of God. And that is exactly what will happen. The Lord is in control. God never got nervous a day in his life. God's life didn't even have a beginning. It always was. It always is. He doesn't get anxious. God's in not some epic battle with the darkness where he's struggling and the, and the ending is unknown. God is overpowered by nothing. Never one day. He never got nervous. Not once. And what Moses needed, what we need each and every day is to connect this truth from head to heart. Here's what I know. For almost everybody in this room, I just said the Lord is in control, and you know what? That moved nobody, because you know that. I know the Lord is in control. We know that in our minds. But meanwhile, we often live and react to life in such a way that that truth never goes from head to heart, from mind to soul. How quickly we freak out in life. How easily we get derailed and anxious over something that happens or might happen. How fast we say, oh no God, we're lost. Not good. You know what's interesting is I wrote this sermon on Tuesday, okay? Wednesday to like now, things have gotten a little out of hand, haven't they? We've had some big picture illustrations for us. We have the coronavirus. That temperature has just been raised up on us all in the last few days. Everybody is watching it. Everybody is waiting. Everybody is thinking. Everybody is stressing. Meanwhile, what started happening Wednesday? Stock market whoosh, starts to plunge. Now there's a financial impact. I know more than a few of you checked up on some accounts this week, right? Made a few phone calls. If you're in the industry, I bet you've received a few phone calls this week, right? This seems out of control. This seems immovable. It seems unstoppable. And this truth needs to go from head to heart. To look to him and to see and to know God's got this. You know, when I was a kid, I was a terrible backseat driver. And the reason is that I got very anxious about getting lost. Hated when my parents got lost. Right? This is pre-GPS days. Most kids look out the window. Most kids are singing to the radio. I was hawk-eyed on my parents from the back seat. And I memorized the look on their faces if they were lost. 
right? And then I would incessantly ask them, are we lost? So my parents were like, Aaron's in the car, remember, all right? Even if we're lost, don't let it, like, be known that we're lost. Keep it in control. Like, Aaron, we're fine, we're fine, right? And then my dad would pull into the gas station, and I'd be like, I knew it! We weren't fine. You do not know where we are. And my mom created this line just for me. She would say, Aaron, you can always find your way home. And for some reason, it made me feel better. Hindsight, not true, all right? But in the moment, I was like, yeah, you're right. You can always find your way home. And that was the line that would, like, dissuade me. And the first promise that God gives us, the first one to feast on, the Lord is in control. He can be trusted with our questions because he's in control. And in him, truly, we'll always find our way home. That's number one. Number two, the Lord keeps his covenant. The Lord keeps his covenant. Five times in chapter six, beginning in verse two, God says and repeats, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Interesting, again, that name Lord in your Bible, when it's in all caps, that is the name God gave Moses in chapter 3, 14, right? We've seen that a few times now. The great I am. The, the name often translated Yahweh. I am the I am. I am Yahweh. And what's interesting is that if you look through Genesis, he says, I did not make myself known to them, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But if you look in Genesis, that name, Yahweh, is there 100 times. So God, it seems to be saying, I appeared to Abraham and I appeared to Isaac and to Jacob, but they don't know me like you know me. I didn't fully reveal myself to them like I am to you. But with them, I established the covenant. What's a covenant? It's a promise. The promise to be their God. That they will be my people. The promise to give them a land. And it's in that context that he says, and so I heard their groanings. Moses, I heard your groaning. Not that I couldn't hear it before, but to show that I'm keeping my covenant with you. I'm committed to you. I'm bound to you. It's not that God gets annoyed when he starts hearing whys from his people. Like, what do you want? I already told you. That's how we would respond, wouldn't it? But to him, he's saying, no, I don't get upset with this. I made a covenant with your forefathers. I made a covenant with you to never leave you nor forsake you. And if you've been here throughout this Exodus series since the beginning of the year, you might be thinking, you know, this kind of language sounds familiar, kind of redundant now. God hears and God remembers and, and God knows. And the reason is because this is what, exactly what Moses wrote at the end of chapter 2. We did a whole sermon on it, the, the whole thesis of this book. God acted to save his people because he knows. He knows the plight that they are under. He knows that he will never forsake his covenant so it's interesting just to think that Moses, who's writing all of Exodus right after the fact, that the reason why he could write that in chapter 2, that, he, that God knows the plight of Israel, is because he personally experienced it here in chapter 6. In his own groanings, God says, I will keep my covenant. 
I am the Lord. It's fitting to see this repeated again and again. You know why? Because Moses needed to hear it again and again. We need repeats when it comes to God's promises. We are prone to forget. Life is prone to happen. Viruses pop up. Finances go down. We need to hear it. Because we're prone to doubt and we're prone to wander. It's the song, come thou fount. Lord, we feel it. And the promise that God will keep his covenant is not a one-time shot we receive at birth. It's a daily vitamin we need in life. We need to preach the redemptive promises of God to ourselves every single day. Take it as our daily portion. Say it again. You know, spending time with God each day, whether you call it quiet time or devotional time or whatever you want to call it that, you know, we often tell one another, or you hear from church leaders or you hear from parents, you need to have your personal devotion time. You know why we need to do it? Because we need it. We don't just do it because like, oh man, we have to, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to have this devo time and it's this like chore. Like question, do you eat every day? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Me too, multiple times. And you know why? I don't wake up and go, oh man, I should eat today. Like I'm a human, my body kind of needs it. No, we, we wake up and we eat every day because we know if we don't, our body will fail. We drink water every day because if we don't, our body will fail. And time with God, it's not this Christian chore that you need to like suffer under but him speaking to you in his word every day. You speaking to him in prayer every day. His word to you. Your words to him. His words to you. Your words to him. You need it or your soul will fail. It's daily nourishment. And so a, a just very simple question, kids, adults, everyone. Where will you carve out time each day to preach to yourself? Serious. Where? When? How? I can't dictate those answers for you, but you can't afford to be vague. We can't afford to say, like, well, I got all these other things in life. I'll fit that in when it happens. You know when it will happen then? Never. The enemy is pretty good about making you busy. Pretty good about using your vagueness and driving it out the window. We can't afford to be vague, that we are encouraged to be in intentional, to be diligent, to, to follow a plan, to write it down. Ask someone, can you check in on me? Because I'm prone to just shelve this, man. I need some help. And the reason is because we need it to get eyes on his promises, to get ears tuned to his promises. Because the gospel is medicine when you're sick, and it's a vitamin when you're healthy. But there's never a day you don't need it. God gives this promise to Moses, and then in line with his pattern, he now gives a message to Moses to share with Israel. God works in him, you see, so that now God can work through him. It's always his pattern. And what's the promise he is to pass along? Number three, the Lord saves in verses 6 through 8, God says, I will seven times. Did you notice that when we were reading it? 
he blitzes Moses with seven guarantees. Seven promises that all add up to the exclamation point that God saves. If you're someone who's okay writing in your Bible, and it's okay, it's not sacrilegious, let me encourage you to underline every time you see I will in verses 6 through 8. I will bring you out of the burdens of the Egyptians, one. I will deliver you from slavery, two. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, three. I will take you to be my people, four. I will be your God, five. I will bring you to the land I swore to Abraham, six. I will give it to you for a possession, seven. Finishing with the refrain, I am the Lord. If we are to preach to ourselves every day, you might ask, what do I say to myself? What do I say to others around me who are struggling, who are suffering, who are asking why? This is a good list to pull from. Here's seven things you can say. Cling to and speak the promises of God. As we read, Moses did say these things to Israel, but they were so crushed They were so broken in spirit, they couldn't hear it. You know, in some weird ways, I find some comfort in that. That the Bible is always real. It's not making a story up. Like, not everyone will be in a place where they can hear it right away. Where they're just suffering, man, and that pain runs so deep, and the confusion is so profound. And life is so foggy, it's just tough to see the clearing. And that's okay. Be patient with yourself in times of suffering. Be patient with others who, especially like Israel, are just crushed. The Bible says, mourn with them. Cry with them. Tell them that you're there. Book of James says, be slow to speak. But hear me, don't neglect to speak. A lot of times people will quote that verse as an excuse to never say anything to anyone. James says, be slow to speak, but don't neglect to speak. Hear me, at some point, you're going to have to say something to yourself, to somebody close to you. So when you do, make sure you speak the promises of God, not the false promises of man. Hear me, don't tell someone that everything is going to work out when you can't guarantee that. Don't tell somebody that their situation is going to work out in the end when you can't promise that. Don't tell somebody that their son or daughter will return back to the Lord in a vibrant relationship with him when you can't guarantee that. Don't tell someone they'll be healed of a disease. Don't tell somebody they will have a child. Don't tell somebody they'll get a job when you can't promise that. And we are prone to want to do that because we think that's what they want to hear. That might be what they want to hear, but it's not what they need to hear. God's promises are the only ones that are sure and true. God's promises are far better than our false ones. And the ones laid out here in Exodus chapter 6, as you pull and trace through the Bible, they find their ultimate yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The Christ connection. If you match those seven I wills in Exodus 6, To what Christ does, this produces worship. 
Number one, Jesus brings us out from under the burden of sin that crushes and shames. Number two, Jesus delivers us from the yoke of slavery, taking our place by dying on the cross. Number three, Jesus redeems us and purchases our salvation by his blood. Number four, Jesus makes us co-heirs of the Father who adopts us as sons and daughters. Number five, Jesus is our God who has full authority as Lord over our lives for our good. Number six, Jesus will bring us to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. Number seven, Jesus gives us an inheritance that is eternal, that is never fading, that is kept in heaven for us. Those are the promises worth repeating. Moses, say it to yourself. Say it to those crushed in Israel. Say it to Pharaoh. See yourself as a child of God. Encourage your fellow brothers and you speak victory over your enemy. Say it again. I am the Lord. We don't have time to read the rest of chapter 6 this morning. I would encourage you to. But there's a list of names through the rest of chapter 6. Exodus began, if you remember, as a book of names. The names of the sons of Jacob were listed. And so Moses is doing something here. He's talking hundreds and generations later, hundreds of years and generations later, and there's a new list of names. Same God. We find out here that Moses and Aaron are brothers. And it's here where we are reminded, God knows your name. This is personal. Not general. This is personal. He's not some removed, careless God. He's a God who keeps his promises. And so I close with a tweet I came across on Twitter this past week. Kids, don't ask. I'll read the tweet, and then I'll tell you about it. It's on the screen. Christianity. Belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, one light year approximately 6 trillion miles, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. You know what's awesome about this tweet? It was put out by a prominent atheist organization to mock Christianity. And they put it out, and I read it, and it caused me to worship. <laughs> Only God can use a tweet by an atheist that he created all things, all this immensity, to have a personal relationship with you. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> the Lord is in control. The Lord keeps his covenant, and the Lord saves. When you wake up again tomorrow, say it again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the assurance that your word brings. We thank you, Lord, that everything leads to Jesus. Lord Jesus, the one who saves. Jesus, the one who reveals himself to us, Lord. Jesus, the one who died on the cross. Jesus, the one who was raised again. Jesus, the one who invites us into a personal relationship with him by faith. For, Father, let it be true. Pray your spirit would do work over this congregation today to assure us, to bring us to you, Lord. And I just pray for us now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together that your name would be glorified as we respond in worship. Amen.